You guys are fired up today. I love it. It's because it's the Super Bowl. Just kidding. It's because of, of the Lord. I know you guys are all wondering who I'm rooting for this year in the Super Bowl. Uh, obviously, the red team. I'm rooting for the red team to win. Red team's going to do great. If you guys weren't here last week, uh, we're finally back in our series through the book of Ephesians. I think by the time that we are done, we will have the Guinness World Record for the longest study of Ephesians in church history. We did it. Or Jesus, or Jesus will have come back. <clears throat> One of the two. So we're uh, currently in part two of a uh, three-part series. In part one, we looked at our identity uh, as the beloved children of God. And part two, which is where we're at right now, we are uh, diving into our collective identity as the family of God. And then in part three, which is coming up sometime between now and eternity, uh, we're going to talk about our partnership with God in the work of his kingdom. And last week, Billy launched us back into Ephesians. He spoke about how we are to imitate, or uh, the word that uh, the, the scriptures use is this word, mimic the love of Christ. And in order to do that, in order to mimic the love of Christ, we have to sit and soak in the aroma of the love of God so that our lives will become fragrant with his love. In other words, if we spend time with King Jesus, we will start to smell like King Jesus. This morning, uh, I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 5, but we're actually going to be focusing our attention um, on verses 3 and 5. We're actually going to skip verse 4 today. You'll understand why. Um, and then next week, Dom is going to lead us through verse 4. Uh, the title of our sermon today is The Infection of Idolatry. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, I'll be reading from the NLT this morning. Imitate God, therefore, in everything that you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Here's our verse today. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Church, this is God's holy word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are in desperate need of your wisdom as we deal with these words before us today, Lord. And so I want to ask God that this morning you would communicate to each and every heart in this room what you want to speak. And Lord, we just say together, collectively as a family this morning, that we are open to what you have to say. Thank you that you're faithful to speak, Lord. And so we Open our ears to you today, Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, the words before us uh, in our text today are not likely to find their way into your pretty devotional calendar, right? You're like flipping through the months. Oh, what does February say? 
hmm, let there be no sexual immorality, greed, or impurity among you, right? That's like not going to show up on your calendar. Nor will these words make their way onto your cute Christian coffee mug that you drink out of every morning, right? You wake up in the morning and you're like groggy, barely like open your eyes and you're like, I just need something, something to motivate me. And you're like, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's exactly what I needed this morning, <clears throat> right? If we're, if we're honest about it, our hearts navigate and gravitate toward the pretty verses of Scripture, right? The Jeremiah 29.11s, the Psalm 23s, the John 3.16s, the verses that talk about the immeasurable love and kindness and beauty of God, verses that remind us of His promises and His faithfulness and His love. But when it comes to the verses of Scripture like this one, the verses that expose and challenge us, the temptation can be to keep our distance, to keep them at arm's length, because they're just not quite as easy to digest. I recently had the privilege of uh, interviewing, doing a video interview with a man named Andy Crouch. He is the author of a book called The TechWise Family, which I cannot recommend enough, especially if you are a parent in the room. And the central argument of the book is this, that the great promise of technology is the idea of easy everywhere, right? Technology is a, is, makes your life easier and more efficient, and it is available to you whenever and wherever you need it. But here's what he argues in the book. He says, easy is not what forms us as human beings, Easy things do not shape us in any way. And it's actually the difficult and challenging things in life that shape us into the image of God that we were created to image from the beginning. Now, he's obviously speaking about technology, but the same exact principle can be applied to the way that we ingest, interpret, apprehend, and appropriate Scripture if we only cherry pick the verses of the Bible that make us feel good or affirm what we already believe, then we will never be formed and molded into the image of God, which is the entire point of the Christian life, to bear the image of God. This is what it means when Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 5 when he says that we are to imitate God, we are to bear his image, and we need the difficult verses of the Bible like this one just as much as we need the devotional calendar verses. We need the Ephesians 5 threes as much as we need the Psalm 23s. Because the Bible is actually a confrontational book. I don't know if you've actually thought about the Bible that way, but the Bible was designed to be a confrontational book. The Bible is not a self-help book. The purpose of the Bible is not to make your life easy. The purpose of the Bible is to make your life eternal. And because of this, God's word is not afraid to confront the things in your life and in my life that need to be dealt with, the things that hold us back from being the people that we were created to be. Like a really close and trusted friend are the scriptures. A friend who is not afraid to be honest with us when we need it. And if we allow the Bible to read us, examine us, confront us, and check us where we need to be checked, 
then we will be so richly and gloriously transformed into his image. Amen? Amen. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's jump back into verse 3 of our text. This is what Paul says. He says, Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. And here is how Paul defines sexual immorality. He uses the Greek word porneia, and you can imagine what uh, words we get from that. Uh, And porneia is any sexual activity outside of the context of marriage. Any sexual activity outside the construct of what God has designed between a husband and a wife. But then Paul goes a little bit further, and he uses this word um, akatharja, which means uh, the word he uses for impurity, and that means the lustful, uh, the impurity of lustful, luxurious, profligate living. Now, this includes sexual activity, particularly um, acts of, uh, of sexual deviance, but it's not confined to just sexuality. It refers to all kinds of impurity and a general uh, uncleanness. And then Paul takes it even further here, and he introduces the idea of greed. And the Greek word that he uses for greed is this word pleonexia, which means the desire to have more. More money, more power, more influence, more security. Pleonexia is the insatiable need for more. Now, if we're not careful with a verse like this, um, it can kind of read like a spiritual checklist. Like, these are the things that I need to do in order to make my life right. We look at a verse like this, and we're like, okay, well, don't be sexually immoral. Okay, well, I'm married, so that's good. And I don't like a porn, so I got that, that going on. And I think I'm doing pretty good at this sexual immorality thing. Don't have any impurity. Mm. Well, that's a little bit more difficult, right? I mean, I guess there are some things that I struggle with. And then greed? Well, gosh, who doesn't want a little bit more in life every now and then? And just three boxes in, and you're like, this is impossible. There's no way that I can do this. But here's the thing. Paul is not giving us a checklist. What Paul is giving us is a diagnosis. He is trying to diagnose something within our souls, and sexuality and impurity and greed are just symptoms of a much deeper and more powerful illness. In verse 5, Paul gives this illness a name. He calls it idolatry. Look at verse 5 again, and I'm going to read this from the NIV because it really sums it up very well. It says, For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, this is the master key to understanding what Paul is getting at and why he appears to be communicating with such urgency regarding this issue. And so in order to figure this out, we have to ask the question, what exactly is idolatry? Well, the concept of idolatry is first introduced in the Bible in Exodus chapter 20 when God gives Israel the Ten Commandments. It says in Exodus 20 verse 4, it says, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. From this, we can gather that an idol is anything that takes the place of or takes preeminence over God. 
Now, notice something specific about this verse. It says, do not make an idol of any kind. That means that idols don't have to be bad to be idols. Idols can be and often are the good things in our lives, right? Sex and sexuality is not an idol in and of itself. Money and wealth are not idols in and of themselves, nor are possessions by themselves idols. It is the elevation to the, of something to the place of God that turns it into an idol, Sex and sexuality become sexual immorality when we look to sex as our primary source of satisfaction instead of God. Money and possessions turn into greed when we look to our bank account and our real estate as our primary source of security instead of God. In the book Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says this about idols. He says, an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I will feel significant and secure. If sexual immorality and impurity and greed are the symptoms, then idolatry is certainly the illness. And if we are to live the way that Paul is calling us to live, then we must treat the illness and not the symptoms. If we don't, then the real illness will continue to thrive and our symptoms will return over and over and over again. Uh, if you have read the news recently, you're probably aware of the devastating coronavirus outbreak that is currently wreaking havoc across China and abroad. And in just a few weeks, this epidemic has surpassed the infamous SARS outbreak of 2003. At this point, there are over 12,000 people who have been infected with the virus, and sadly, it has claimed the lives of over 259 people. The virus has spread uh, to every single province in China and uh, is now present in over 22 countries, including eight cases here in the United States. This infection is spreading so fast that uh, I've had to every day update my notes with the correct totals of number of people who have been infected. When I started my notes earlier this week, it was at 5,300, and it is now at 12,000. The global response to the outbreak has been swift, it's been exacting, and it's been extensive. In total, the Chinese government has spent over $4 billion fighting this virus. There are 15 cities in China that are under lockdown right now, which has placed over 60 million people in quarantine. Just this past week, um, all the legacy airline carriers, Delta, American, United, they canceled all their flights to and from China, and just a few days ago, a US, the U.S. sent a jet into the region to, to evacuate diplomats and key personnel, and their plane actually landed in Riverside, and they are still under a mandatory 14-day quarantine until it can be determined that there is no threat of the disease spreading. Why do we take such drastic measures to fight an infection like this? 
It's because we know that just a hint of a deadly and contagious infection left unconfined and uncontained can wipe all of us out. Just a small trace left untreated can ultimately cause mass destruction. We understand the gravity of the situation, and we understand that the only way to protect humanity from an infection like this is to find it, isolate it, and eradicate it. When an infection breaks out, we don't just sit around and hope that things will get better. We send teams and doctors and resources and everything we can to squash the outbreak before it can destroy the population, right? We declare war on the illness. Friends, idolatry is a spiritual infection. Sexual immorality, greed, impurity are all part of an illness that ravages the human soul. And it is far more deadly and far more contagious than any virus that we know of. And Paul says that we cannot tolerate it. Idolatry cannot run rampant in our, in our souls, nor can it run rampant in the family of God. Now, the first thing that an idol does is it attacks our identity. The identity is like, um, it's like the immune system of the soul. And when we are spiritually healthy, when Jesus is at the center of our lives, and we have a right understanding of who we are in him, our identity is able to... Anybody want to take a guess? Wash your hands. With all of the advances that we have in modern technology, still the most effective way to stop the spread of an outbreak is to be washed. And I want to tell you today that the best way to prevent the infection of idolatry is to be washed, for your soul to be washed by the living water of Jesus. You don't need sin management. What you need is to wash yourself in the truth, to bathe your identity in the beauty of his love, to allow our very being to be washed by the truth of God's word, to echo the words of David in Psalm 51 when he said, Lord, wash me thoroughly from my sin and my iniquity. Purify me with hyssop and wash me white as snow. To trust in the promise of 1 John 1, 9, when John writes, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. But here's the thing. When we get sick, what is the first thing that we do? All of us. We deny it. <laughs> or we blame it on something else. Oh, it's just allergies. I get that a lot from my wife. I tell her my symptoms and what's going on. She's like, it's just allergies. My leg could be cut off and bleeding, and she'd be like, it's just allergies. Your leg was allergic to that saw. Or what we do is we diminish our sickness, right? Oh, it's no big deal. It's just a little cold. And then we go into the office, and the following week, everyone's missing, and you're like, mm, that's interesting. Where did everybody go? <laughs> or, and I'm going to preach to some people in this room right now, you drop your sick kids off in the nursery. 
And you're like, well, well, they were up all night with a 102 fever, but you know what? I think they're okay now. I think they're good. And we're like, yeah, they're, they're okay, as the snot is just like flooding and pouring out of their nose. And then the following Sunday, half the church is gone because the kids went home, they got the parents sick, and then everybody gets sick. There's grace, okay? There's grace. And we laugh about this kind of thing, but is this not the exact same thing that we do with our sin? Sometimes we just outrightly deny that we have a problem at all. We're like, lust? Not a problem for me. I've got devices on my phone and my iPad and my television and my computer and my laptop. My heart is guarded. And then two minutes later, we're staring at a woman in yoga pants as she walks by the coffee shop. Or we might say, who, me? Greedy? I'm not greedy at all. I'm like the least greedy person that I know. And then your friend gets a Tesla. And all you can think about is how you need to get the next model up from them, right? They have a Model Y. Well, I'm going to get the Model Z, which is not a real Tesla, by the way. But I saw some of you were like, oh, there's another model of Tesla. I must get it. I must have that. Look at what the Apostle John says about this way of thinking. In 1 John chapter 1, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Maybe we don't deny our sin outright. We just kind of diminish it. We say things like, well, looking at a beautiful woman on the street, it's not the same thing as looking at porn. Or we might say, wanting a car is way less greedy than cheating on your taxes to get ahead. At worst, we blindly tolerate sin, and at best, we cover it up as not that big of a deal. But Paul is saying explicitly in our passage today that idolatry is a big deal. Sexual sin impurity, greed, idolatry. It's all a big deal. It's a big deal for your life. It's a big deal in the church, and it is a big deal to God. Look at what Paul says about the idol of greed in his letter uh, to his protege, Timothy. He says, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Look at what Jesus himself says about the idol of sexual immorality. He says in Matthew chapter 5, Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Scripture reveals to us that ultimately the illness of idolatry is terminal. To regulate the desires of our hearts, able to keep things in line, just like our immune system is able to keep things in check, so too is our identity able to keep our desires in check. And what idols do is they attempt to convince us that God is not enough to satisfy our identity. 
yeah, God, God is love, but if you really want to be satisfied, if you really want to experience love, then what you actually need is sex. Sure, God has provided for you, but if you really want to feel secure, what you actually need is that raise at work. Do you guys remember uh, a few weeks ago, Dom spoke about the yeah, but also box? Digging through the yeah, but also box. Well, yeah, but also is the way that idols hijack our identity. And then once an idol has control of our identity, what it does is it functions like an autoimmune disease, turning our own identity against us. And the thing that was once able to keep our soul from being destroyed is now the thing that is destroying our soul. When the identity of a business owner becomes entrepreneur instead of beloved child of God, he can start to forsake his wife and his children and his principles and, in, as a, and his integrity in service to the idol of success. When the identity of a teenage girl on Instagram becomes influencer instead of beloved daughter of God, she can start to share revealing photographs of herself in service to the idol of affirmation. When the identity of a pastor becomes celebrity preacher instead of beloved servant of God. He buys expensive shoes and watches and cars and houses in service to the idol of entitlement. Do you see how idols infect the life of the Christian? But the virus of idolatry does not just affect the individual Christian. It affects the whole community. Like a virus, sin infects the entire kingdom. And this is why Paul is saying, let there be no sexual immorality, no impurity, no greed, no idolatry among God's holy people. Another translation of this verse says that there shouldn't even be a hint of this among you. And another translation even says it this way. It says it shouldn't even be spoken of among you. You see, Paul understood the threat of sin and idolatry to the health and well-being of the church. Idolatry has the power to turn entire nations of people away from God. And if you do not believe me, just read the Old Testament. Time after time after time, the Israelites, the people of God, allowed the infection of idolatry to run its course among the people. And time after time, it decimated them. Like an infection, the illness of idolatry spreads via human interaction. This is exactly why Paul warns the church against the practice of engaging in obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes in verse 4 of our passage. Idolatry is most easily transmitted through our conversations, our relationships, and our interactions with one another. Do you remember uh, in the book of Exodus when Moses went up to the mountain? And as time wore on, all the people started to get impatient with Moses and with the Lord also. And you can imagine the scene there in the desert, right? One disgruntled person grumbles to another person about how this isn't working out. And then rumors start to swirl around the camp that Moses is not coming back. And finally, the word gets around to Aaron, who is Moses' right-hand man. And look what the people say to Aaron. They said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. And then what does Aaron do? 
He obliges them. He takes all of their gold and he melts it down into this golden calf. He even builds an altar to it and the people start to worship the idol. But they're not really worshiping a golden calf, are they? They're worshiping the idol of control. The God who led them out of Egypt was not enough for them. They were not willing to wait for him, and so they created a God of their own destiny. And sadly, this narrative repeats itself often throughout the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, Israel allows the voices of culture and one another to infect their mindset toward God. And time and time again, God has to deal with the outbreak of their idolatry. The prophet Isaiah paints a pretty devastating picture of the ultimate effect of idolatry on the people of God. He says this in Isaiah chapter 2. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. Do you know what the most effective way to fight the spread of an outbreak is? James shows us the prognosis of our idolatry. In chapter 1, he says, temptation comes from our own desires, which is another way of saying idols, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Even our most valiant efforts to fight the infection of idolatry will fail, and we will ultimately succumb to its effects. And if you don't know Jesus today, this prognosis is bad news. There's no way to sugarcoat it or soften it or lessen it. Paul says at the end of our verse, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. Paul is being very direct here about the fact that if you are not in Christ, if Jesus is not the Lord and Savior of your life, then your soul is destined for the grave. Because a life of idolatry will always lead to an eternity of separation and the ultimate exclusion from the kingdom of God and of Christ. A life of sexual immorality, which is the idolatry of sexuality, will ultimately destroy your intimacy with God. A life of greed, which is the idolatry of more, will ultimately lead you to become spiritually bankrupt. The idols of this life might promise us immediate satisfaction, but they will fail to deliver anything but death on the other side of eternity. But for the one who believes upon Jesus, there is good news. Here's the good news. Although you might be infected and afflicted by sin and idolatry, as all of us are, your illness doesn't have to equal a death sentence. Because 2,000 years ago, someone else took a death sentence on your behalf. 
The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that Jesus became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that for a second. Jesus, the only one who is truly immune to sin, sacrificed himself so that we might receive the antidote to sin. Jesus became our sickness, our illness, our infirmity so that we might possess the cure, so that our sick and weary souls could be healed once and for all. And this antidote to idolatry is called grace. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul says this, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Grace is the cure for the illness of idolatry. To the one suffering from the idol of pride, grace restores your humility. To the one suffering from the idol of greed, grace restores your contentment in God. To the one suffering from the idol of sexuality, grace restores the purity of your heart. To the one suffering from the idol of envy, grace restores the kindness of your disposition. To the one suffering from the idol of anger, grace restores the tenderness of your temperament. To the one suffering from the idol of self-righteousness, grace restores the sufficiency of the finished work of Jesus. To the one suffering from the idol of approval, grace restores the voice of God's pleasure to your ears. To the one suffering from the idol of control, grace restores the truth of God's sovereignty to your mind. And to the one suffering from the idol of bitterness, grace restores the sweet taste of God's love to your lips. That's what grace does. And the really good news today, the best news, is that there is more than enough grace to go around. There is a never-ending, overabundant dosage of grace because of what Jesus did on the cross. Romans 5 verse 20 says where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also will grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The power of grace upon the soul of the Christian never fades or dwindles and the potency of the blood of Jesus never wanes or wavers. This medicine of grace is offered free of charge to any who are willing to receive it. We don't have to pay for it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to pay it back. It is freely given. But just like with any medicine, we can refuse treatment. We can refuse the supernatural remedy for our spiritual sickness. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you have been struggling with sexual sin or greed your whole life. And you have tried just about everything that you can think of to get rid of it. And no matter what, it just keeps coming back over and over and over again. Each time wreaking havoc in your life and your relationships. Each time leaving you feeling more and more defeated. I want to tell you today... 
That you actually don't have a sexual immorality or greed or impurity problem. What you have is an idol problem. The coronavirus, as I mentioned before, uh, gets its name because under the microscope, it bears the resemblance of a crown. And there's certainly some irony there because what is an idol if not a crown virus? An invader hell-bent on ascending to the throne of your soul. An imposter king who will lie, cheat, and steal its way into obtaining control of your attention, your affections, your desires, your motivations, and that throne belongs to Jesus. Grace is the cure for idolatry because grace, by nature, dethrones whatever is sitting on your heart. Theologian Thomas Chalmers said, this is one of my favorite quotes, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. When grace is apprehended by the Christian, the idols of the heart are apprehended, dethroned, and expelled by the power of his love. The extent and the extravagance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross reveals that he and he alone is the only one with enough love, enough mercy, and enough authority to govern the vastness and the complexity of your being. He alone is the only one strong enough to carry the weight of your soul. Grace reveals to us that Jesus goes where no other idol will go. That Jesus does what no other idol will do. And that Jesus is what no other idol can be. So today, church, let us look to grace. And as we do, may we find the remedy for our spiritual sickness in the person and the finished work of Jesus. Amen. Lord, we are in desperate need. Every person in this room right now is in desperate need of a dosage of grace, a prescription of grace for our hearts, Lord. All of us in this room have allowed lesser things, lesser idols to sit on the throne of our hearts, and we need grace right now. We need grace to fill our hearts and our minds right now. We need grace to dethrone what is sitting on our heart because Jesus, you are the only one who is worthy. You are the only one who is worthy to sit upon the throne of our hearts. Sin causes us to look down to our infirmity, but grace causes us to look up to the King of Kings and the glory of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that by your spirit right now, you would lift our heads to see the wonderful, boundless, abundant grace of Jesus right now. We have a time to respond to the Lord this morning. The carpets are here at the front of the stage if you need to take a posture of surrender. This is where, this is where we lay our idols down. The prayer team is to the left and the right. If you need somebody to point you to Jesus, if you're just messed up and you're like, I can't even think about how to sort this out, talk to someone. They would love to pray for you and point you to Jesus. And if you're a Christian today, 
I need a, and you need a prescription of grace this morning, look no further than the front of the stage. The juice and the bread, a solemn reminder of the blood of Jesus and the remedy that we have because of his sacrifice on the cross. And if you are not a Christian today, if you haven't accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, the truth is that you will always be controlled by idols until the day that you die. You will always be governed by things that were never meant to hold authority over the fullness of your being. And at one point or another, they will fail you. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point they will let you down. But I promise you, I promise you today that Jesus will never fail you. His love for you will never fail. His forgiveness will never run out and his kindness will never run dry. The Bible says that he will never leave you or forsake you. The honest truth is that none of us in this room are guaranteed tomorrow. This life, it's here one moment and it's gone the next. The Bible says that our life is like a vapor. But the Bible also declares with authority and with triumph that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to put your faith in Jesus to believe in what he has done for you and walk with him. Church, let's not leave this place until Jesus is sitting upon the throne of our hearts. Amen.